Thank you. You may be seated. Before we look at um, especially Genesis, but Genesis and Romans together today, uh, I was going to try to weave in um, really cutely uh, some uh, words about illness and sickness and germs. <laughs> Certainly this is a Lenten conversation, right? But rather than trying to be cute, I think I'll just say it, okay, at the front, and then we'll pray, and then we'll preach. So um, undoubtedly, you've heard about coronavirus, or now I think is what it's being called, COVID-19 is the new classification, and um, it's all over the place. And so I thought maybe a couple words about germs would be good. We're going to talk about germs. I would not usually do this, but I want to say the first thing, the foremost thing, if you hear me of nothing else, the coverage of this will invite us to all panic, okay? The people of God do not panic. Because even in the face of death and uncertainty, our certainty is sure and safe because we serve Jesus. If there is a big gift that we can give to the world in these kind of things is to be a non, a faithful, non-anxious presence. Can I just say that to you? That having been said, a couple of precautions is probably a good idea. When, By the way, for here, there, and everywhere, these are good precautions, okay? And so I just want to talk to you about that for just a minute. Okay, so first thing, because we don't panic, every sneeze, cough, or sniffle is not a life-ending illness, okay? <laughs> Most of the time, it is because we have allergies, all right? So we're just not going to panic. That's not going to happen. Everybody is saying, everybody, that the number one precaution to take is to clean your hands. That, do you know that that is the number one precaution? So you might notice we've got a little hand sanitizer around here and tissues so that when you have a sniffle, you can put it in a tissue, throw it away, and then sanitize your hands if that makes you feel good. Jan and I washed our hands before we came in. We will sanitize our hands before we serve communion. Chalice bearers, I'm going to ask from now on, that you, just before you take the chalice, after Jan and I give you communion, would you just walk over? It's not sacred or sanctified hand sanitizer. It's just normal <laughs> hand sanitizer. Go ahead and clean your hands before you serve chal chalice. Can I just encourage you? I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you a dispensation as your priest. You have a fever. If you are sick, you may stay home. To quote a boss once when another employee asked, hey, Brian thinks he has strep throat, what should he do? He should get away from us, was what he said, and sent me home, okay? Stay home, especially if you have a fever. Stay home, rest, get well, don't come to church, okay? That will help us all. That is true in my family. My sweet wife is sick today. She stayed home, okay? So do that. Now, we're going to clean our hands. We're going to stay home if we're sick couple more things. When we're passing the peace, here's what we're learning. The biggest way things are transmitted, and by the way, the bigger concern right now is flu even more than coronavirus, just flu, regular old flu, is through our hands. That's what we're learning. So little fist bump. Nate's got one. That might be good for peace. The uh, church-appropriate side hug, right, is good. Where both of our mouths are breathing out here and not here, you know, that's a good one. And if you'd like to shake hands, got a little hand sanitizer around. You can just after, you could just do this before you come to the table. That would be good, okay? So that's a good way to pass the peace. Last but not least, a lot of questions I get about, we share a common cup, 
clearly it's just a Petri dish. Actually, the truth of the matter is it's not. There's some, there's some ideas out there from the CDC that says actually the way we do communion is pretty safe because it's sterling silver and alcohol. That is how they purify instruments of operation. The truth of the matter is that actually the more um, is putting your fingers in that wine is a little bit more risky. But look, we're not going to worry about both of those things, okay? We're, we're safe. But if you are a little freaked out by the common cup, can I share something with you that's true about Anglicans that we believe? The real presence of Christ is completely contained in both either the bread or the wine. We're not Catholic in that way, that it has to be together. So if it's just, if the cup is freaking you out, and like, I don't want to go to church because the cup is freaking me out. First of all, let me just remind you not to panic, okay? But secondly, all you would have to do is take the bread from our very sanitized, clean hands, not once but twice, and you could just pass it over the top of the cup and take it, and you have taken the body and blood of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's what you'll do as an option. Cool? Can I also say, I think you are completely safe to intinct and sip. I think you are. Or I, wouldn't, I, would, I would make us all pass it over the cup. I don't think it's a problem because we don't panic. Okay, enough about that. Last but not least, what should we do? We should pray. Let's pray right now. So God, our Heavenly Father, we come and we recognize that we have it pretty good in our country. Our healthcare system is pretty good, that we have the luxury of hand sanitizers and education. And we have people who are helping and watching and thinking about this on our behalf. So we bring people in the rest of the world, in much of the rest of the world, God, who don't have this at their disposal. We ask that you would protect all of us, that you would um, put an end to this virus. And God, as we pray about this and we think about this, we are looking forward to the day that we just sang about, where there will be an end to all sickness and death. And God, I am praying for those who are afflicted with uh, the flu and coronavirus and other things, God, that you would bring them healing and comfort. We especially think of those who are elderly and at high risk. We pray, God, that you would protect them and heal them. And for those in our parish, which are many, who are suffering from flu and cold and virus and uh, not coronavirus, but of just normal colds, God, we are praying for them that they would be restored to healing. But most, God, we ask that you would, in your grace and in your safety, make us a people of faithful, non-anxious presence that we can bring the love of God and the assurance that no matter what our physical state is, we are safe because you are God. We ask it in your good and great name. Amen. All right. Business out of the way. When God created the universe from nothing except his words, he included in that creation men and women's identity, purpose, and unity. I just want to say something to you. If you read the Genesis story as merely the way scientifically things came about, and by the way, that's a beautiful story. They came about by Jesus' words alone, by God's word. Well, Jesus too. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their words alone, beautiful. But you've missed half the story. God also at that moment creates our identity, purpose, and unity as humanity. He creates it in that moment. And if you don't believe me, I'll tell you. But first of all, I'll tell you why he creates it. Because the deepest longing of the human heart to know who am I, why am I here, 
and where do I belong? Our identity, purpose, and unity. This is the deepest longing of the human heart. Why? Because God created it so. And he gives it to us in the story of creation. First of all, he answers the question, who am I? Well, we're male and female. We were created to be God's image bearers on the earth together as men and women. This is our identity. We show the rest of humanity in creation God. Because we were created in his image. We show him God. The we find our life, our very essence of existence in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We, our very life, our identities are found in God. So we've got to talk about two trees this morning in the garden. There is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A lot of times we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil first. That is not where we should start. God doesn't start there. God starts with the tree of life. And just so you know, a lot of Christians think that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to eat of either tree. That's not true. In fact, God said, eat the tree of life often. And like it was, it, here's why. You see, he didn't say that. He put it directly in the middle of the garden for a reason. I am your source of life, he's saying. You should eat of this fruit a lot. You can eat of every tree including the tree of life, and frankly, I put it right in the middle so that your path every day is going to cross it several times in my creation. And when you go by, pick a piece of fruit and eat it. Ingest it. Because I am your life. Body, soul, spirit, emotion, I'm your life. I have created you. I have given you your identity. Don't miss it. Don't miss a location. And there's another tree the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to see in just a moment that this tree is the representation of us taking our life and identities into our own hands and not taking life from God. Can you hear me say that? That tree is the symbol of us taking matters into our own hands. Matters of our identity, matters of our purpose, matters of our family unity into our own hands. Okay, so who am I? We are God's body, soul, and spirit, and he is the giver of life, and we are his so that we can show him to all of creation. We bear his image. God, just beautiful words. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Beautiful. Secondly, why am I here? Our purpose. We were purposed to join God as co-creators, we as human beings are God's agents for creating life. Actually, be fruitful and multiply. Have babies. This is the actual creation of life. But there's more. If we just leave it right there, that leaves people out. Because not everybody is capable of doing that. There's sin and there's sickness and there's other things. So God also had in mind that we are going to join him in creating by creating beauty. These are all things that are in this story. Beauty, sustainability, goodness, and order. Th those four things God did in creation. Beauty, sustainability. He uses the word steward, but it's supposed to sustain itself. Goodness. God saw all that he did and said it was good. Right? And order. There's order. 
And so God had intended for human beings to join him in this work. Our deepest meaning and purpose of life is to be co-creators with God. You're not as excited about that as me. <laughs> I mean, I just want to talk about meaning and purpose for a minute. Or we've been talking like vocation and calling, same words. Do you see how this changes our lives as the people of God? From just hanging on for dear life until God comes back to saying, no, I'm going to join you in creation. I'm going to be a co-creator with you, God. I'm going to join you in that work. That changes everything about meaning and purpose. It puts it in the heavenlies. It puts it at the tree of life. It puts it in God's order. How do we create beauty, sustainability, goodness, and order? Well, God in chapter 2, before the fall ever happens, uses one word two times. First, he's talking to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit again. And he says, this is all really good, but there's no one to do the work. That's in verse 5. It says it. And then he creates Adam first. And before Eve is even created, before that even happens, God says to Adam, I want you to join me in co-creation through work. You are to work in the garden. Why am I hitting this hard? Because at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, us taking matters into our own hands, work has taken on characteristics that God never intended. After the fall, through sin, work has taken on characteristics God never intended. And I'm going to give you the scale of that. You know I love scales, so pretend there's a line. <laughs> on one side, after the fall, work becomes hard. And so for many of us, we despise work. We try to get out of it as often as possible. We can't wait to the day we don't have to do it anymore. We despise it. For others of us, because we've taken matter into our own hands for our purpose and calling in life, work has become an idol that we have worshipped. I can get my identity, purpose, and unity through my work makes work an idol. If I just work hard enough to produce, people will love me. There's my identity. If I can just work hard enough to produce, I'll have a meaning in life. Following me? Let's stay here a minute because you're quietly uncomfortable. This is a big one in our area of the world. Work is an idol. It's been an idol. It's an idol because we've taken matters into our own hands. Work is good. It is God's purpose for us to create through our work beauty, and sustainability, goodness, and order. But Brian, I hate my job. Yeah, I hate my job sometimes too. Sorry. Um, but, you know, just, just a little joke, a little pastor humor there for you. Let's get your attention. Yeah, work is good. And even your work that you don't like right now can take on new meaning if its purpose is found at the tree of life and not in one of these two centers. Because in the midst of the garden, between work as despising and work as idle, there is life. You can find it 
in God's creation through Christ. How do I do that? Another sermon for another day. We're going to get to one way in just a minute, but just hang on there. So who am I? I'm the image bearer of God, a co-creator with him. That's my identity. My purpose is to co-create through work. Excuse me, my, my purpose is to be a co-creator through work. That is why I am here. And last, where do I belong? Well, we belong together in a family that is an intimate fellowship with God. This is what he creates. This is what he creates. Now, he literally creates it because there's a marriage in chapter 2. The first marriage is in chapter 2. We still say it in our weddings today for this reason. Man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Or woman, you know, this is what we say. You, cling, you leave and you cleave to one another. But I do want to say that that is, that is important but too small of a version of God's family because all of a sudden now, now we have to say, yeah, but what if I'm not married? Am I lesser somehow? Or do, I, do, I, do, I not have a per, do I not have a family? No, of course not. The bigger thing here is this. It says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 8, which we didn't get to today, but we read a little, we, we read a little snippets because this is a long story and so we're trying to think about all of it. But after the fall, there's this little phrase, so God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God communed with Adam and Eve, somehow personified. We don't know exactly how that was. And this idea about the cool of the day was the restful part of the day. He invited them to be intimate, to, be, to have a relationship with him. That's why we were created, to be part of a family of God that he instituted. See, those of us in the Western world, we have a little bit of trouble with this. But when I was in Senegal in East Africa, this becomes really, really clear all of a sudden. See, for us kind of in the Western world, family, this idea of family has become too small. It means, uh, most of the time, it means mom, dad, and kids, right? And whole ministries are based on how do we keep mom, dads, and kids together? And like heretical songs are written about keeping mom, dad, and kids together, right? Like they, but when you go to Senegal, and you go to one of their villages. I was my first church that I was fortunate to be a pastor at. We we did a partnership with the Ngasiak, this little village in, in Senegal out in the bush. And you know, you had to take your van out there and it got stuck in the sand like you were just driving through the desert. We had to get out of the van and push it. And we get to this little remote village. And what we find out when we get there is that although they're from different nuclear families, different parents, they operate, this village operates as one family unit. Everybody takes care of everybody else's kids. They cook every meal together, they prepare it together, and they eat it together. They operate as a family. And you get a picture of what God had intended for family in creation, that we together would be a family, intimately with him. Now, that's God's intention, and it's beautiful. And when he's all done, he steps back and says what? This is very good. God's intention for us is good. It's good. And then Satan talks to Adam and Eve. Um, I just want to say that we have a couple of characteristics, but please hear me that what Satan does is he ch is challenging Adam and Eve's identity, purpose, and unity. He is in this temptation. In fact, he does the same thing with Jesus in the desert. Identity, purpose, and unity. If you are the Son of God, is a temptation against Jesus' identity. 
if, if you're the Son of God. Did you hear it? Yeah. And again, it's Jesus' purpose to save the world through the cross. You don't need to do that. I'll give you the world. Just worship me. It's much easier than dying, right? And Jesus' unity with his Father, get on the temple and throw yourself off, is, is Satan's invitation for Jesus to be God for himself. Get on the highest religious institution where everyone can see you, jump off, your father will have to send angels and everybody will worship you instead of him. That's it. Those are the temptations. Satan does the same thing to Adam and Eve. Temptation has some characteristics we need to learn, right? Because it helps us to resist it. The first is this, is that temptation is seldom ever in the form of just an open lie. Seldom, if ever. I almost said never, because if it was just a lie, you'd see through it. But Satan isn't doing that here. It's subtle. It's a twisting of these things. And, you know, a better way to say it is it's a counterfeit to God's goodness. You can get this a different way. And so Satan just does this. He says, and in fact, do you know that Satan and God actually agree on something? They, they agree on something. Satan says, hey, listen, what God knows is that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open to both good and evil. That's what he's saying. Later on in the chapter, after it's all said and done, and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is having a conversation, you know, with himself, he says, you should, you should read it with a sigh. You should read it with sadness. You should read it with utter sadness. It's the only way I can say it. Love for us. Oh, no. Now their eyes are open, and they know the difference between good and evil. They are like us. They can see it all. This is trouble. Satan and God agreed. The difference was Satan said it would be a good thing for us to take life for ourselves. It'd be a good thing for us to do things our own way. And God knew that this was going to lead to death. And that brings us to the second thing about temptation that we have to talk about today. When you agree with Satan, whether that be, and the New Testament's clear about this, through direct conversation with him, or through the world system that says there's a better way to do it. But the most, by the way, the number one way we agree with Satan is in our own flesh. That's what the Bible says. The number one way I agree with Satan and his temptation is to say, I can do it better than you, God. I can do it better than you. That's the number one way. I mean, Paul says, it lives with you. That temptation walks around with you every day. They both agree that it's going to bring death, but Satan lies, gives a counterfeit. He says this little thing. Well, if you eat of the fruit, you're not going to surely die. And what Satan is saying to Adam and Eve is this. He's saying, when you bite from the fruit of good and evil, you're not going to keel over on the spot and go down. See, he just limited, his, he just limited the definition of death. He actually made death kind of nice. The nice part of death is for this life to be over, actually. And for those of us who are believers, entering in then to eternity, right? The end of death, the actual last breath of our lives, especially for those of us who know God, are good. But think of someone who's been suffering. That last breath is freedom. So Satan says, you're not going to die. He takes the little best part of death. You're not going to just keel over and die. That's what he's trying to say to them. So he just twists it. But that's not the death that God, that's not the death that God was warning us about here. The death that he was warned, warning us about 
First is shame and our identity's purpose and unity. Shame tells us that we are no good. Not that we've done something bad, that we are something bad. And it is the absolute first thing that happens to Adam and Eve. Why are you hiding? Because we realized our eyes were open and we realized we were naked. And what do they say? We were ashamed. It's an immediate breaking. Shame says to God and on and Satan's behalf that the God who said what he created is good was wrong. What he created was really bad. That's what shame says. That's one way death comes. A, system, a second way that death comes is through a systematic ending of life and an introduction of all kinds of evil, which always, these evils always lead to death, including overt death like murder or wars or abortion or natural disasters, disease, but also as well as humans allowing other humans to die of poverty or neglect or abuse or racism and all forms of injustice because we have lost our sense of God's good intention for creation and frankly, we don't care what happens to other people. That's the death that God warned about. And it is the death that is ushered in into our world. Do I have to convince you? I don't think I should have to. There is another death. There is a death of the family. That once what, that once what God intended is that we were all his children, now is dead. That relationship's broken. And God has to say, you have to go out of the garden and I'm no longer going to commune and walk around with you anymore in the cool of the day. This is a theological nuance we have to talk about today because I don't want to leave you with the idea that we're all God's children. We can all be God's children again. We'll get there in just a minute. But this was an utter death of family in the garden. Sad. God is so sad. And last but not least, we've already talked about it. God's idea for work dies and comes out of this healthy life-giving place to hatred or idol. It all dies. God says, now work, toil. And we know through the story of Cain and Abel, it became an idol. My work is my identity. You have a better sacrifice than me. I'll just kill you. Take yours. We're good. Work is an idol. And so we've got an utter death. Two more minutes. So now we're in Lent. I get asked all the time, why do you people do Lent? What a weird thing to do. I have been accused in my life as a pastor of celebrating death. And my response is, you're darn right. You're darn right. Why do we put black on the crosses? Because we have got to recognize that there is a death we're dealing with. And we have got to come to grips that as humans, we were created and instilled with God's intention and ideas for identity, purpose, and unity, but that we are also sinners. And through that sin, there was a death of those things. One of the biggest mistakes that we could make this Lent is to fly by death. And why is that? Why is it such a big mistake? Because if we don't pause at death, we miss the good news of Lent. There is a third tree 
It is in the shape of a cross. And Jesus died on it to reverse the effects of the garden and to restore us to his, God's, good intention for our lives to be a people who bear his image, to be a people who do his purpose through work of creating beauty and sustainability and goodness and order. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we can now become a family again with God through adoption as his sons and daughters through the cross. If we rush by death this Lent, not only do we miss the state of our desperation, but we miss the whole glory of the celebration that not only was there a tree in the middle of the garden, but Jesus established a tree of life again in the middle of the world. And here's what Paul says. The tree that Jesus put in the middle is way better than the death that happened in the garden. The death is total, but Jesus' grace is abundant. It overflows. That's what Paul says. One man's sin, Adam, introduced death. But one man's obedience, and always read when you're reading these passages, obedience, parentheses, to the cross, to death. That's what it means. One man's obedience ushered in, not death, abundant life. The way of obedience to Jesus is way bigger and way better than the disobedience of Adam's. And it is in the cross and in Christ that God's plan to redeem the world and to reconcile us to him and to each other and to restore his original intention for humanity, that we are a people of his identity and his purpose and his unity. That is the Lent I am inviting us to celebrate together this year. And I ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen.